Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode 110 of the podcast. And we're coming to you basically from a country that in the last six, seven months has changed greatly. Um, You know, the Trump prosperity is gone. The uh, Trump optimism is gone. Um, And we've elected a pitiful buffoon, a liar, a cheat, and a coward is now president of the United States. And he's senilic to boot. He's a senile old man to boot. Uh, He's lied about Afghanistan. He's lied about a lot of things. He cheated and stole an election. And he also is a coward, just a moral coward to fight the Taliban. What you're seeing in Afghanistan is not a withdrawal. It's not a political solution. What you're seeing is an unconditional surrender. It's an unconditional surrender. I don't don't know how any other way you can put it. Uh, the, The Taliban has inherited everything as a successor state of what we knew of as Afghanistan, the government we were supporting. And um, we've left tons and tons and tons of military supplies behind. And uh, that's what it's been. I mean, we've just left it, abandoned it. Billions of dollars. And, you know, not even talking about the money that's been spent over 20 years. Just the stuff that's left on the ground there is billions of dollars. Stuff that we gave the Afghans, the Afghan government. And then you see the Afghans running on the tarmac and trying to jump into airplanes and everything else. People who won't defend their own country. People who are, and a lot of these, especially the younger men, are abandoning their wives and children to get on these refugee flights and wind up somewhere. You know, this is an unmitigated mess. This makes the fall of Saigon look orderly. It really does. It really does. This is a terrible mess. Brought to you by a coward, a cheat, a liar, and a senile. That's what this guy is. I mean, you see him on television. He's just, he's pathetic. He's absolutely pitiful and pathetic. Certainly not up to the job. Neither is his vice president. Um... You know, it's 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 absolutely terrible. Now, the other band of villains in all this are, are someone we've mentioned before. And that is the generals who were charged with training and equipping the Afghan army so it could defend itself against the Taliban. And they've had 20 years to do this. It's not like, you know, hey, they just tried to do it in the last few months. But they won't learn from history. Vietnamization did not work and that was essentially the same thing train enough South Vietnamese so they could defend their own country and they would replace US units in country and they would over the uh, Iraqi army we had to go back and and basically uh, um, take the country back again from them and we're not talking here's the problem we're not talking about sophisticated first world military forces that have a lot of 
resources. They don't have air forces. They don't have indirect fire support. They don't have special operations people. They don't have a lot of these things that we are told a military has to have to be successful. I'm willing to bet that the cyber capability and electronic warfare capability of the Taliban is not very good. Yet, they're the ones dancing on the airstrip at Bagram in Kabul. They're the ones. These generals, and you can go back and you can name them. Alan, Petraeus. Oh, there's even more than I can even think of. Um, all of these people are bums. They're bums. They have the most sophisticated military in the world, and they can't beat an 11th century band of raiders and thugs who use cast-off weapons. That's the truth. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of the reason is no one takes ownership of a war anymore the way a General Patton or a General Eisenhower would. You know, General Eisenhower was told, um, you know, he and, and it's a famous document, you can Google it, but the upshot of it is the instructions he was given from his commander-in-chief were invade the continent crush the german army and occupy germany that's really what he was told to do it's only like a paragraph and it tells him exactly what he has to do and eisenhower took that as an order and did it if we were trying to fight world war ii the way we are now well eisenhower would have been in charge for a year <laughs> a year and a half then he would have been replaced by somebody else and then they would have been replaced by somebody else and the problem with that, no cohesive strategy gets executed. It's just one caretaker after another, a guy who's going to get gigaws on his uniform for being a general and, and, and uh, all the kind of good little things that come along with that. So his uniform will look nice, but the job isn't getting done because we do not have combat commanders anymore that we empower and tell them, your job is to go defeat the enemy. We had those. It, it, and you have to look at history. You look at Eisenhower. You look at MacArthur. You look at Patton. You look at Bradley. You look at these guys. You know, Chester Nimitz, if you want to go to the uh, Navy. Uh, Curtis LeMay. You know, Curtis LeMay wasn't just going to bomb Germany or bomb Japan and then hand that off to somebody else. He was going into the history books because he was going to complete the job. And, uh, you know, Halsey, these, these guys just weren't steaming around and saying, well, you know, in three months I turn over command at Admiral so-and-so and he's going to steam around for a while and we don't really have to fight the Japanese. No, these guys went out and sank the Japanese Navy. Um, MacArthur liberated more territory than Alexander the Great. LeMay was systematically burning every city in Japan. I mean... These people weren't fooling around. Right now, we got a bunch of people who fool around. And they're just into themselves. It's just about their own deal. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who is a moron, Tucker Carlson called him a pig. I think he's a moron, an idiot. I don't know if he's a pig, but he's nobody I would respect. I wouldn't follow him across the street out of curiosity. He couldn't even manage. He couldn't even manage going to the church where George Washington used to go to that was going to be burned in Lafayette Square by you know Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters 
He couldn't even handle that. So how is he going to handle the Taliban? Um, you know, and it's it's going through our, our military officer corps. These guys want uniforms with all kinds of badges, medals, and ribbons, and all those other goodies. And And you know what? Those goodies are fine, but they're not scaring the Taliban you will find that the Taliban doesn't wear very many medals. <laughs> Why would they? They don't. They're, they're out there as a 12th century force. They're actually fighting. And they're actually doing that. They're not, they don't worry about coalition warfare. They don't worry about, will this piss off our NATO partner Germany if we use tear gas? Will this upset Great Britain? They have to start learning lessons that coalition warfare is bad and we knew that was a bad thing in world war one we didn't really participate in it the way that uh, our allies wanted us to we kept an independent force pershing would have been the perfect general for afghanistan because he would have crushed them he would have crushed the taliban um this is a this is a disaster of unmitigated proportions and it's it's because we fooled ourselves into thinking that a we don't need real generals who are going to go out and fight and going to be profane and spit tobacco and kill people we need a bunch of you know corporate marketing managers and, and these guys try to look tough and they hang enough stuff on their uniform to look tough but when it comes time to put their cleats on and get on the field obviously they're not very good obviously they're not very good oh they can kick the crap out of the iraqi army which collapsed they can kick the crap out of you know chase the taliban out of out of uh, kabul initially 20 years ago but you know what think about this think about this some people who joined after 9 11 are getting ready to retire our guys yeah, they 20 year career the Taliban you see running around Afghanistan were probably either not even born yet or children when this all started 20 years ago. Think about that. How could this be? How could we be so far wrong? How could we have allowed this to happen? That Normally the, the model for an insurgency the model for an insurgency is about 10 years. You got guys in their, say, early to mid-20s, and they're red hot, up the revolution, you know, viva la wherever. And, and basically, if you can play that war of attrition with them, just start killing these guys off, after about 10 years, it peters out. And that was based on the British experience in Malaya. You know, it just kind of peters out. Tried that in Vietnam, and it kind of worked. The Viet Cong were gone at the end of 1968, but unfortunately the, the North Vietnamese army was still around and operating and took over the war. This is not hard. This is not difficult to figure this out, but it takes resolve. One of the quotes that I don't know if it's true or not. It's always attributed to Admiral Yamamoto, the architect of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese admiral who planned and executed the Pearl Harbor attack. And he said, we have awakened a sleeping giant 
and filled him with a terrible resolve. And that turned out to be true. Basically, three and a half years later, we were dropping atomic bombs on them from a point of an abject defeat in, at, at our farther, farthest outpost in the Pacific to absolute victory against Japan, which at the time was the world's far, foremost naval power. I mean, their, their navy was much more advanced. They didn't have as many ships as the UK, but they had them more concentrated and they were far more advanced. Their aircraft carrier, their fleet air arm, was the biggest and best in the world. And we sank the Japanese navy. Sank it. At the end of the war, they had very few warships left. Uh, there was, I don't think they had anything larger than a destroyer, as a matter of fact. So the there is no substitute for victory. There is no substitute for victory. And yet, uh, we keep acting like there is. And these generals and admirals and these people we have, they don't seem to get it. They, they're like disconnected from the war. If, if they're not part of it in commanding directly, they act like there's no... There's absolutely... Uh, it doesn't exist for them. You know, it's just another stepping stone so they can build their egocentric careers. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the fighting men and women in the armed forces. The leadership has been criminally negligent. Criminally negligent military leadership. There's no other way to look at it. There's no other way. And it's a shame. It's a shame. And, uh, I mean, if we can't do better against the Taliban, how do you think we're going to do better against some of these rising regional powers in Europe or Asia or some other place? We just can't, we just can't afford to keep messing around. We cannot afford to get, at, to get in this mode of we can fight wars with surgical strikes. A precision strike will, uh, and, and, uh, you know, special operations will win the war for us. We can't think like that. We need to put conventional armored units on the ground and crush the enemy. Not just hit what we think are their important parts and this and that. We need to crush them. We need the fear. When they hear a tank engine, they need to have fear. When they hear a helicopter, they need to have fear. And they need to have fear that death can strike them silently. All of a sudden, everything around them starts exploding and they're dead. And they're going to see that with their, quote, friends. And they know it's going to happen to them. We need to instill that fear. We're just not doing it. We are just not doing it. Afghanistan is a debacle. But it's a predictable debacle that Joe Biden has brought to you. This is courtesy of Joe Biden, a fool, a larker, a, a man who's not in control of his own mental faculties most of the time. And when he is, all he cares about is, you know, the financial deals that his little boy Hunter is making. 
He doesn't care about the country. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about the troops. He doesn't care about anything. What does he care about? The only thing I can detect is persecuting his political enemies and making sure that his little son Biden, his little son Hunter Biden, has got a soft deal and is making big money. You know, selling, you know, paintings that look like they were done by a three-year-old for fantastic prices. I mean, this is all graft, corruption at the highest level, and it has to stop. Biden is a fool, and a fool, an old fool at that, and he's not in control of himself mentally. I'm sure he has periods where he's more lucid than others, but that's not going to make it. That is not leadership, and that's not anything we can afford. Now getting into something a little more gun-related, uh, as you've probably heard, uh, let me see if I can cover this right. There's a Russian opposition politician. He somehow managed to get poisoned. I don't know if he was in jail and got poisoned or what. So they're bringing more sanctions. And one of those sanctions is no more Russian guns, no more Russian ammunition. Now, that's that's what everybody's overreacting about and, and going down to. First of all, the existing licenses are still good so they're just not going to issue any new ones now this does this will hurt in the long term in the short term you shouldn't see it although people are starting to panic buy and hoard again which is just ridiculous but that's what they're doing here's the deal they're not going to issue any new licenses after september 7th nor are they going to renew any that expire the good news on that is is that at least Tull ammo and uh, Wolf ammo have licenses that are good through the end of 2023. So that, that will still be coming in. So I think this panic buying is going to be a fairly fairly small um, deal compared to the rest. Um, you know, but it's still not good news. I mean, it's not good news if you have an AK-74 and it's not good news if you need inexpensive nine millimeter ammo to train with those are all bad and and i think you know number one anything they can do to to hassle gun owners they're going to do so this that's where this this came from the other side of the coin is what democrats can't seem to understand is ammo has nothing to do with crime nothing to do with it if there's plenty of ammo there is not more crime because of it we're in the middle of a crime crime wave right now. Crime is climbing everywhere. The crime rates are going up, and yet ammo is still in short supply. So there you go. That's proof positive right there. Uh, this this you know this Russian ammo supply has kind of been under threat for a long time. For a long time. So what I hope happens is just as you know, they put in these import bans against the rifles we really want, and in some cases, pistols we really want. Hey, we just make it here. Buy the equipment from them. Make the stuff here. Maybe instead of costing $11 a box, it costs 14 but, you know, at least it's available. At least it would be here. 
I think you're going to see like a lot of wolf ammo is made in different countries now. I mean, some of their some of their 22 is made in Germany. I think some of it was some ammo they had was made in Mexico. And some of it was made in the Republic of China, although I've heard that was actually just surplus. That was packaged and resold by Wolf. But be that as it may, they're obviously diversifying. There are countries like Poland, Romania, and a bunch of others that could, you know, easily host these factories. So we'll see how that develops. We'll see how that all turns out. Um... Hoarding is a bad thing. Panic buying and just putting money into people's pockets for being the middleman is always a bad thing. And it should be resisted um, basically as hard as, as hard as they can. Um, to me, the only caliber that's seriously at risk in all this would be 545 by 39. Because it really, there's really only one gun that shoots it, and that's usually some sort of AK-74 derivative. How many of those there are around, I don't know. But uh, it's an excellent cartridge, and if it's made here, it might become a niche or very popular cartridge, you know, especially in some of the short action or tiny action guns, micro action guns. Uh, it could be very, very cool in something like that. So there, there may be a little bit of a silver lining in a future for that um, if it's made here. And for people who want to shoot mass quantities through AKs, uh, it may become a hand-loading type proposition until somebody can set up the uh, uh, steel-cased ammo production lines here. So we'll see. We'll see what, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, it's a little bit early, but uh, we can start the questions and answers portion. Really not much, a lot of gun culture stuff uh, going on out there. You know, there's podcasts and this and that. And, you know, frankly, I think, you know, a couple of the trends I've seen have been, you know, gun stores and the online and, and in um, in person, the gun shops you go into, they're, they're well stocked with firearms. It's ammunition that's still the long pole in the tent. And it's coming back. But hey, you can go in there and buy firearms. No big deal. I mean, it's that portion of the panic buying has stopped and the manufacturers are catching up. I'm sure there's still things on, on back order and everything else. I don't know what it takes to get a cold python these days. I haven't looked. But um or the Anaconda, which they've announced. I don't know if they're selling them yet, but the Anaconda is out there. Pretty pretty cool, but I don't know how long it takes to get them and what the deal is on them. So we'll see. But the ammunition has still got to catch up. And my estimation is, and I've said this kind of before and been wrong, but six months I think we'll, we'll see kind of what we would consider more normal stockages of ammo. We're even starting to see some primers out and they're they're pretty overpriced but i think in six months um you'll start seeing primers there and i'm hoping that they come about they need to come out down about 50 percent in price i think they're charging when you can find them i think it's like for large pistols say 60 bucks for a thousand primers and really fair market on those really should be about half that so we'll see how that we'll see how that all shakes out 
But be that as it may, let's go to the uh, first question. Are you undertaking any new hand loading experiments? And the answer is, well, yes. I managed to get my hands on a Lee 356. Um, no, that's exactly wrong. A 456 Lee bullet mold. A 456 that's it's notionally made for doing conicals. Uh, I think for black powder 44 caliber handguns um, with pure lead I think that's going to be a really good bullet for a 455 Webley and uh, so I'm looking really looking forward to trying that out and see if I can make that work and in an auto rim case see if I can expand it enough and seed it and without mangling it or something so <clears throat> I may take I may actually have to do this in fired unsized cases to make sure they've kind of expanded at least a little bit so it'll be an interesting experiment it's going to take uh, a few tries and some and uh, well definitely some trial and error to see how I can fit that large bullet into a case that when it's resized and everything normally takes a four five two bullet so uh, those four tenths and you never know, you know, a, a Lee mold could throw them a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller. So, um, you know, you never know. But I know one thing, you're gonna, it's going to require probably almost pure lead as a black powder gun would take. Um, I'm just thinking that that's, that's going to be it. The regular stuff I use for, for um, pistol bullets, you know, which used to be kind of the wheel weight sort of mix that's that's probably going to be a little too hard so i'm going to go with pure lead and see see where it takes me all right do you think it's worth buying colt three and four power optics the vintage optics for ar-15 sp1 copies and clones um if you're a collector certainly you know, if you're just going to use it, I, I think you'll be disappointed overall in its performance compared to modern scopes. Uh, if you're going to do a lot of shooting, I would suggest, you know, my first choice are the the kind of the Chinese knockoffs, because if, even if one turns out crappy, you can just buy another one. Give You give two of them a try, and they're not that expensive. I think the Colt ones are going for silly money. Used to be those things used to be those things could be had for under 200 bucks now i'm sure they're probably four times that but um you know the chinese ones are still 60 to 80 bucks so you can give those a give those a whirl and they have the look they, they pass all but the very closest of scrutiny the next step up are the brownells they're about three bills supposedly they're made by the original manufacturer but you know we'll see you know um Everybody who has them likes them, but there are a lot of people who like the Chinese ones too. You know, it's probably just a difference in quality control, and and uh, you know you can save some money. And if you get a good one, you're you're great. You, if you get a bad one, hope they got a return policy. They're good little scopes. They're not they're not you know super awesome or anything. I mean, really for something. For getting a scope just a little bit larger you, you could put a modern scope on there and have something that is much more capable 
for probably about the same money as a Brownells or certainly as an original. Um, and then if you go up a step from there and put something like an ACOG, which won't look very vintage, but will be an excellent scope. So uh, as a matter of fact, the, the difference between I put in, I have an ACOG on my A2 clone and you know it's it's uh you can tell it's a couple of generations better than the uh um original style the chinese scopes i have for for the a1 so you can tell that okay here's the next question are retro ars boom or bust now uh they were the hotness two three years ago now where are they well i think the market has definitely cooled off on them uh People who wanted them really bad now have them because there was a lot of options available. You could you could build one. You could buy one of the ready-made Brownells ones in several different versions. I think they've cut back the versions now. Um, and, you know, you, you could buy an original for, you know, under $2,000. You could buy really nice SP1s and you think well that's a lot of money well you know the Brownells clone would cost you a thousand so and to build one would probably cost you a little less than that so um, yes they're out there but I think a lot of the people who really wanted them have them and they'll be kind of a niche market uh, it's still a great rifle I mean um, the the magic of the retro AR the magic of the retro AR is yes it does not have a flat top but you can attach a, a uh, what we call the carry handle carry handle scope on it and it's it's usable it's good um, you can do a lot of things to it um, you know put an accu wedge in there and kind of tighten it up a little bit and it's not a it's not an inaccurate rifle it's very lightweight very hard hitting very practical and useful they're really good they're really good rifles and they were decades they were at least 30 years ahead of their time i mean nobody recognized it until 30 years later <laughs> 40 years later but they were really well ahead of their time you know i bought uh, one of the proto ars from brownells it's got the trigger charging handle that on the top and uh, I have to tell you, that's probably my favorite AR. I mean, it's, uh, of course, you're stuck with iron sights. That's no big deal. I like iron sights. I like the look of the gun. There's a lot of it I just really like. And uh, it's excellent. Um, it's excellent. The only, the only thing where Brownells can't come up to the original is, you know, the, the original furniture was never meant to last decades and decades and decades and so brownell's plastic furniture looks sort of like it but it's it's really not and they've used the modern way of um with the slip ring of holding the handguards on other than that though it's it's like it's like a time warp you're going back in time and i tell you um the people who said hey this is the way of the future and everything else now is is kind of old-fashioned uh, they were right they were exactly right here we are nobody ever would have thought in the 60s or 70s or even the 80s that 40 50 or 60 years later 
we would still be using this same basic rifle. And in fact, the original rifle would would be able to hold its own. So nobody would have nobody ever would have predicted that. So um, they're very they're very very good rifles. They'll always be a niche market for them. For nostalgia is one reason, uh, and the other the other is simply uh, that they're they're functional and nice. So that uh, is the reason. Yeah, you have that with a lot of 55 grain ammo, and you are well armed indeed. Okay, here's another question. Binary triggers, are they a good idea? Um, I have to say that I'm not a fan of binary triggers. I don't like things like that. I, I consider them, and, and this will bring controversy, but I consider them inherently unsafe. And that's because there's no real way to stop that second shot. You pull the trigger back, it fires, and when you release the trigger forward, it fires. Um, there's no way to stop that second shot. I, I don't really like that. I suppose if you still have the the trigger held back and you could dump, the, which, you know, again, you could dump, dump the magazine and run the charging handle and, okay, there'll be no ammo in the gun, so whatever the trigger does after that, it does after that. But during all, the, all that process... If you fail to keep that trigger in the rearmost position, baby's going to go off. That's bad. That is very bad. Binary triggers are a bad idea. But if people want them, they can have them. They're also a bad idea because, <laughs> look, you know, ammo prices and availability, binary trigger, you know, it doesn't take uh, a genius to figure out that those two things together are going to lead to a problem, which is you're going to burn what scarce ammo you have at twice the rate because every time you pull the trigger and release it, allow it to reset, two shots go off instead of one. So the, the binary trigger is not a great idea. They look like a lot of fun if you've got ammo that you can expend. And I know a guy who had one hooked up on an AR and he had and the thing was uh, belt fed it was one of those belt fed ARs kind of an odd looking looking gun but he was able to put some rounds downrange with that i mean strictly a toy it has no real tactical use but it was it was fun nonetheless you know and in in an environment where class 3 weapons are prohibitively expensive this is about the best you're going to do that's about the closest you're going to come but I would still say that um, the ammo expenditure and, and all the other things connected with it are, are a problem. And, you know, the silliest thing is I knew, know another individual, um, a person of not very good judgment, you know, that you buy the top of the line SIG AR clone, and you know, which is really made for target shooting, and then put a binary trigger in it. Uh, it's, you know why would you do that you know why would you do that why would you buy essentially a match rifle and put a binary trigger in it i don't know but but that's been done uh, i guess everything gets done at one point or another and now that has been done okay what cartridges are dead or dying in your opinion there is probably a simple overarching answer to that because that kind of a question you could you could spend hours on 
naming every conceivable cartridge and you know a, a short list would be Winchester short magnums oh the Weatherby cartridges practically any 22 center fire except 556 African big game cartridges 7.7 6.5 Japanese 7.35 6.5 Kirkano 3040 Crag 303 British perhaps even 8 millimeter Mauser sadly one of my favorites 7.65 Argentine Mauser you could you could make a case why all of those are dying cartridges and it's not a question of are they good cartridges or not so please don't inundate me with email that but my seven millimeter Winchester short magnum is the best cartridge ever it, it might be for you it might be for a lot of people it might be but the overarching way to look at this is it's about demand uh, and you can take take a couple cartridges and, and illustrate the points a 556 there's all kinds of rifles being made for it there's all kinds of rifles have been made for it and therefore you got this incredible demand for 556 ammunition incredible I mean it's smothered out nobody nobody unless they're they're kind of a quirky hand loader does 222 Remington Magnum anymore you know no nobody does that nobody does you know a lot of the 219 zipper you know unless you just have an older gun that's chambered in that and it's something that you uh, uh, want to do 219 Donaldson wasp you know I mean those those things are long gone and basically even like the um, what was it 224 Weatherby Magnum and even the 22 250 has just been submerged by the 223 slash 556 just numbers it's it's not about which is the best it's not about the relative merits of them it's just about it's a physics problem it's huge and it exists it's kind of like trying to trying to move the uh the great pyramided giza you know i mean it's just it's too massive it's there the market is huge the number of rifles made for it is huge the number of components and and something else that people that never really factor into it the loading data and component availability and and uh, you know just the number of reloading recipes for it it's, it's just huge so you can use anything from 45 grain to 77 or even 90 grain bullets I suppose depending on your gun and you know it's it's just massive it does a lot in that 22 caliber it dominates it now another gun which should be you would think would be dying would be 30-06 and you say wait a minute 30-06 that was the most popular deer rifle for decades and that's right and that's why it is not really dying it's it's not at the forefront anymore but it's about in the middle of the pack because all kinds of guns have been made for it, whether they're surplus conversions or or just the the bolt guns that have been made in it since the 1930s and you can still find guns for it today they're they're not a lot and i mean it's going to be on the rack with a whole bunch of other choices but you can still go buy a new 30-06 so while not a lot of new ones are are coming in there's a substantial amount 
of ones that already do exist. So you will see 30-06. There will be a demand for it because the rifles are out there for it. It's not growing as fat, nearly as fast as 5.56, but it's it's at least kind of maintaining its position. Another cartridge, which, you know, to show the demand kind of it, is you go into almost any gun shop that stocks ammo, and let's just talk 2019 so we can get past all the COVID nonsense. Uh, you know, you're seeing a lot more uh, 6.5 Creedmoor. That's a very popular cartridge. It's a great target cartridge, and they're finding it's a, a very good game cartridge. So it's got two different audiences there, and there's a lot of guns. Everybody's making guns for it now. It certainly does not have the amount of guns out there in the public that the 30-06 does. But 6.5 Creedmoor is a much larger market share of the new rifle market. So there's going to be a big demand for that ammo. Uh, anything they're not really making guns for, and let's just say, uh, and I mean, I, I don't even know some of these. Let's just say that um, a 7mm 08, good cartridge. Not a lot of guns were made for it, and they're not making a lot of guns for it. Therefore, you may have to dig around to find ammo for it because it's just not going to be around. They're just not good. They're just not going to make a shit ton of that ammo for a very small market so it's just going to be harder to find antique cartridges are going to become specialty loading things um you know some of the what was a steinel you know the guy who he kind of loads some of that some of that stuff those things are going to be definitely a uh a thing to go by a friend of mine started a little company called cavalry arms so look up cavalry arms and uh, he kind of does modern stuff but he also does some of the kind of older stuff you know if you want 401 winchester self-loading that's the only place i've seen it so so there you go if he had 351 i'd be happier but but um, getting cases for that is the the devil's own work as they say uh and there's the other overarching thing is there's also going to be certain sport ammo that has high demand. What do I mean by sport ammo? Um, I'm going to say like 45 cold, 3840, 4440, um, stuff used in cowboy action shooting. If cowboy action shooting kind of stays the same or even expands a little, you know, there's always going to be kind of a high use, a high demand for the volume of that ammunition. Um, simply because you shoot a lot of it in matches and you know not everybody hand loads so there you go and you know um it's it's kind of a a quirky tangent to the gun market but there are a lot of single actions being made in those calibers you know the uberties and pietas and and the rifles come in i mean and and the rifles are very compelling i mean the uh you know the 70 in winchester 1873 copies and my my favorite the one i want the one i want is the yellow boy you know the copy the brass receiver winchester 66 i don't have one but i think they're just absolutely gorgeous the uberti rendition of that gun is particularly beautiful they're not cheap but they are very beautiful um 4570 has also had a great 
you know, it's been a steady cartridge. Everything from the old when I was when I was a kid growing up, 4570 were the old trapdoors and maybe an eight old vintage 1886 here and there, you know, Winchester 1886 lever gun. Now there's all kinds of things out there. Um, it's loaded for both vintage shooting and for modern shooting in uh, uh, Marlin, you know, big strong Marlin lever actions, you know, the, the stainless steel ones that they take up to Alaska. Very good cartridge for there. Very good cartridge for all that. One of my favorite cartridges, which is definitely on the dying list and has been has been on life support for a long time, is a 32 Winchester Special. Great cartridge, fun gun, but really only um, chambered in the Winchester 1894, and they stopped chambering them years ago. But they did they did a fair number of them. But you know, there's there's really not a lot of guns out there in use. And the demand for the cartridge is very low. So that's going to be another, just another one of these that's going to be specialty loading and very hard to get, you know. And, and uh, when they stop, if it winds up like 351 Winchester, and it might, because it's got some of the same attributes. The same attributes are only really one gun was chambered for it. It took an odd bullet size, and those two things are usually the kiss of death. Just like 351 Winchester. I mean, unless you can figure out how to make your own brass, and um, you know, I'm no, I'm no wizard with forming brass. I've tried the 556, and that doesn't really work. The rim isn't enough to engage. I suppose I could get it to operate as a single loader maybe but it's it's um you know it's it's the extractor just doesn't grab that as way you would think it would so you have that and then you have the uh um you know odd bullet size of 351 it's kiss of death it just it's that's just what it is so anyway um you know those are the attributes so you can make up your own mind you you take a any cartridge and kind of put it into that are there a lot of rifles for it existing and i mean a lot are there new rifles available for it uh, does it take common components you know 30 caliber rifle that takes a 0.308 bullet is is pretty universal there are some exceptions but it's pretty universal you know, does it are the, is there a lot of reloading data on the on the cartridge? You know, is there a lot of different powders people use, a lot of different bullet combinations? And uh, I think you know when you start plugging in all these things, you find that what is popular and and what just is out there existing. And uh, so that is about the best thing. I can say for you know what cartridges are dead or dying you know it's just it's just kind of out there uh, one of the things I didn't talk about African big game cartridges um, those things are, are going and that's another aspect of this that's I this is another this is a postscript to the question but another thing is expense um, face it when I've never I've never had an African big game gun but I've looked at some of the prices and you know 
if you could find loaded 505 Gibbs ammunition. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you're paying $200 a box of 20. Um, I would say that uh, I know that I've looked at 416 Rigby ammunition, and I think that's well over $100, 100 to $150 a box of 20. Uh, 375 is a little better because it's, again, it's in a bit more common use and there are a lot of guns out there and you know face it most people don't want the real bone crushers so 375 is still very popular in that class although I will tell you I think that class is shrinking um, it's shrinking for a couple different reasons number one I think the expense of going to Africa has always been kind of daunting but if you can overcome that now there's a stigma you know it's no longer considered cool to go to Africa and shoot big game and the people who do it and put their photos on Facebook saying wow look I got this I got that um, face it there's a there's a big stigma against that and a big backlash I mean look at look what they're doing to LaPierre you know they, they tried to smear him with it he went 10 or 11 years ago and, and apparently you know from the skeptic and enemy of the NRA kind of description I guess the professional hunter had to kill the elephant give it the kill shot after uh, it was wounded but you know look at it it's just become it's just become um, very unfashionable so therefore it isn't going to be considered cool to to go do that so it's a shame really because a lot of people in Africa who aren't who don't have a lot kind of depend on that tourism hunting dollars kind of gives them a livelihood that they normally would not have an opportunity to get so the big the big game cartridges are going to kind of go off another thing that that kind of got the big game cartridges um, years ago Big game cartridges were cool to own simply because they were the most powerful things around. And, and, and everybody knows bigger's better. Dirty Harry, 44. Mag if you watch the Dirty Harry movie, remember he's got a 458 Winchester Magnum that he, he tries to shoot uh, from the top of the building. Um, you know, very interesting. A lot of people liked it because most powerful. But, but now they, they, nowadays they've been completely eclipsed by the long range, th things like 338 Lapua on up. And of course, there's always 50 BMG, which is which is up there. So they're really kind of these quaint relics of an older age. You know, the the design is older. They're you know, they're they're not really cool. They don't have the technology that 338 Lapua or the Shy Tech uh, cartridges or the you know the Barrett cartridges that have that have come out. They don't really have that you know that really the development of obviously the bullets and obviously the powder and and they were never meant for long range they were just meant for you know brute power out to you know two or three hundred yards at the most so they've been completely eclipsed the cool stuff now is the the long range and extended long range and and, and all that so you know those things are they were always hard to come by and they'll become even more hard to come by and they've been expensive and they will continue to be very very expensive so I think that about uh, kills that question and our next question is 
this is asking me to be a futurist or a future predictor which I'm very poor at so so take this with the largest grain of salt you can find do you see a resurgence in cowboy action shooting or zoot shooting and zoot shooting is the 1930s basically the 1930s uh, gangster and bootlegger version of, of cowboy action shooting the answer is well I, I certainly don't know would be the first one my guess would be no that the baby boom generation grew up with westerns and we haven't seen a lot of westerns since I mean they kind of had a they, you know they're always kind of around there's kind of these um, you know a few movies come out here and there and and uh, you know there's some very good westerns out there but I don't know that they capture younger people I don't think Millennials really watch westerns I think they watch westerns kind of the way that baby boomers would watch you know something about the Revolutionary War you know just kind of say man that was way back there I don't you know I don't really identify with it same thing with zoot shooting I just as much as I adore it and think it is the coolest thing ever I just don't know that there's enough people who appreciate that time period you know the beautiful cars the beautiful clothes the beautiful guns that we had in that period um, were just to me fantastic so I um, I would say no and then it leads to that question what do you think the next kind of shooting thing will be um, I think it is going to be somehow related to video games and you know three gun shooting is three gun shooting people will still be I suppose doing that uh, the two gun action shooting thing that in range was promoting seems to have caught on a little bit you know just having the rifle and the pistol and they're not really gamer guns they're just kind of regular guns duty guns that seems to have some appeal so I would say that that could grow the next thing that could grow and the, again this would fall kind of closer to the two gun thing would be something linked to video games you know some of these post-apocalyptic and maybe the costumes are you know people wearing hood hoodie type things and long overcoats and you know looking very science fictiony with you know bandoliers of ammunition and you know kind of interesting guns everything from AKs and ARs to you know maybe some of the more modern type type guns so you might you might see something like that um, you, you definitely could see something like that I, I would like to see something like that I think that'd be a lot of fun but you know the costuming would be you know almost a blend I don't want to use the word comic-con but because that has its own connotations but kind of people taking that post apocalyptic post apocalyptic um, genre and turning that into a two gun or even a single gun sport you know even just a close range rifle deal I think I and I personally think that's actually a lot better a lot less hassle a lot less expense 
and you go through it with either a handgun or a rifle you know and I think that would be very cool I think that'd be very very cool so I think that's where it's actually going to go um, something that resonates with familiarity with the young generation that has played video games um, and right now those seem to be very popular ones so I think that that will be that will definitely be the uh, the way that the, kind of the costuming things goes cowboy action may go away and maybe something like this takes its place and I think they can rectify some of the mistakes I think cowboy action shooting made a horrific mistake by doing the two you know you need two pistols a pistol caliber rifle and a shotgun and I mean that's a lot of guns you know then you have to build a cart to haul this stuff haul these guns and all their associated stuff around um, I just don't see that as being a a winner I, I think the fewer guns you have you know if you have two guns I think that's okay because you can just kind of carry those around or if you have to have some sort of a little cart or conveyance it's it's somewhat smaller and you know you're not <laughs> you're not bringing a little wagon of of all this junk with you so I think that's a, a better idea and actually zoot shooting was perfect that way because if you had your if you had your carbine and then you had your your um, 1911 you were good to go you know and and that was a lot easier to it's a lot easier to manage and take care of two guns and having three guns all the ammo and and to be very blunt you know what do you really get out of the shotgun things anyway what do you really get out of that well you know I'll just leave it I'll just kind of leave it there that's that's for everyone to decide for themselves but I think um, I would definitely like that and if I remember zoot shooting did have certain stages where you could use a shotgun or if you didn't have one you could just use your carbine so uh, you know there you go um, it'll look post-apocalyptic it'll look kind of like the video game stuff and you know because that's where some of the movies have gone face it uh, some of the movies are based on well Tomb Raider you know going back to that in almost 20 years ago that was based on a game and then you know Angelina Jolie became the the Tomb Raider and, and all this so there's a whole lot of stuff back there that uh, could definitely become interesting and the basis for um, costuming costume game shooting you know or costume gaming I don't know how you want to put it but uh, things like that are a lot of fun I enjoy it I mean I enjoy getting I enjoyed zoot shooting you know putting on the clothes carrying around the Tommy gun that, that was that was a lot of fun I enjoy sometimes I I dress up not really great or authentically but I'll put on something for our military rifle shoots uh, the last one I, I used an M42 jump uniform um, unfortunately they're not quite as sturdy as the originals <laughs> so I wound up with a tear in my pants but um, you know that you know that's that's the problem with a lot of this stuff it's made kind of for cosplay and not really it's not really good range clothes so that was always the problem with zoot shooting was you know if you wanted to look you know like a dapper gangster well that's great but you're not walking around a city street you're walking around a dusty gun range and so 
um, you had to adjust your stuff to do that and uh, you know it, it is what it is it is what it is so anyway this that is it for the 110th episode of old school guns and if you have any questions or comments you can leave them in the Podbean questions and comments area and I will go ahead and answer all questions you on the next podcast and if you don't want to do that and you want to email it to me directly email it to kbmakel that's kbmakel at aol.com at aol.com so that is it and this will wrap up the 110th edition of old school guns this is old school guns out <laughs>